0: Hello everyone and welcome to a special replay episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The forum is on winter break for a few weeks to take some needed rest and be with family and friends. During this break, we want to take a moment and reshare past episodes in case there's a good story you missed or you may want to re-listen to. In this replay, we're sharing an episode from 2022 that featured a powerful keynote address from Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who serves as President and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. In this talk, Dr. Wilson reflects on the challenging times that many of us experienced earlier in the pandemic and the ways we can reground ourselves and move forward so that we can shift from states of languishing, disconnection, and numbness to a place where we can better connect to ourselves, our purpose, and our communities. Introducing this keynote are Jennifer Splansky-Jester, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, and Sherry Brady, Vice President of Strategy and Programs at the Children's Defense Fund. Longtime podcast listeners will also know Sherry since prior to CDF, she was our colleague at the Forum, and we were excited to have her back. One note before we get started, occasionally Dr. Wilson will address a person's name during his talk, At these times, he is referencing comments appearing in the virtual conference chat. It's not always easy to tell in this audio-only podcast environment, so we wanted to give that heads up. With that said, let's tune in.
1: I am so delighted to welcome Sherry Brady to the virtual stage. Sherry may be a familiar face to many of you who have joined the Collective Impact Forum events in the past, and she's a a former member of the Collective Impact Forum team, a past co-host of the Action Summit, and a dear friend. Uh, Sherry is now in a new role as the Vice President of Strategy and Program of the Children's Defense Fund, where she works closely with Reverend Dr. Starsky-Wilson. And Sherry is really a bridge between the Collective Impact Forum and our keynote speaker today, Dr. Wilson. And we've invited Sherry back to help introduce Dr. Wilson today. Hey,
2: Sherry, over to you. Hey, Jen. So hi, Collective Impact family. So glad to be with you all today. Um, As Jen said, I'm Sherry Brady, Vice President of Strategy and Program for the Children's Defense Fund. And I'm excited to introduce today's plenary speaker, my boss, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson. Now, Dr. Wilson has an impressive bio. You can read that in the app. That's not what this is going to be. So I first met Dr. Wilson at a Grantmakers for Effective Organizations conference in 2014. He was then the president and CEO of the Deaconess Foundation in St. Louis, Missouri. And he was on a panel of foundation leaders that were talking about putting values at the center of their work. I was so impressed by what he had to say that I actually waited in line to speak with him after he spoke, which is something I rarely do at a conference. I'm usually the first one out the door. After a session, the line was way too long, and I didn't get a chance to speak with him, but Fortune did smile on me later that day. I found him in the company of a mutual friend, and I got invited to lunch. After lunch, I emailed my colleagues at the Aspen Institute and the Collective Impact Forum to say that I was determined to get him in front of our networks because he was a voice that I really believed we needed to amplify. His message of not just equity and inclusion, but of centering the voices of the communities we serve was right on point for the work that we were doing. Later in 2014, Dr. Wilson was appointed co-chair of the Ferguson Commission, which called for sweeping changes in policing the court's child well-being, and economic mobility in the Ferguson, St. Louis area. And I was even more determined to get him to speak to our networks, but he was pretty busy. He was doing the work and fighting for justice, but eventually stars aligned. In 2016, he agreed to be on a panel at that year's then called Collective Impact Convening in Seattle. After that, there was no escaping me, Dr. Wilson found out. I am most proud to say that I recruited him to be a part of the inaugural class of the Philanthropy Forward Leadership for Change Fellowship, which is another partnership of the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions with one of their, whew, it's weird not to say our, um, partners, Neighborhood Funders Group. And in doing that, I actually managed to scoop him from another Aspen program, not being petty or anything, but that was fun. Um, this allowed me to learn more about his leadership style, his values, and his visioning. Move forward to December of 2020, when Dr. Wilson became the president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund, succeeding an an iconic leader, Mary Ann Edelman. I will say that CDF and Mrs. Edelman had a big impact on my career trajectory, and I really couldn't think of a better choice for the large undertaking of building the legacy of this organization. I will say, though, I had a moment of questioning that when he reached out to me to talk to me about my current position, but because I trusted him, I listened, and here we are. Um, CDF envisions a nation where marginalized children flourish, leaders prioritize their well-being, and communities wield the power to ensure that they thrive. Under Dr. Wilson's leadership, CDF is centering the voice of the 74 million children and youth under the age of 18 and 30 million young adults under the age of 25 that we serve and advocate on behalf of. Understanding that the authority of our work comes not just from proximity to those we serve, but from listening to them and engaging them to guide our work. Dr. Wilson's belief in the power and community—excuse me—in the power of community and the agency of children, youth, and young adults to guide the work is the second thing I admire most about him. The first is his unabashed love for his family and his willingness to admit that his daughter has him, has him wrapped around her little finger. #GirlDad. Seriously though, I am humbled and grateful to be in service with Dr. Wilson to fulfill the vision of CDF. I am proud to be able to serve as a bridge here between my new work family of CDF. In my collective impact family, so please join me in welcoming Reverend Dr. Wilson to the stage.
3: Good afternoon uh, to you, collective
4: impact uh, community. Um, I, I'm I'm just glad to be able to be invited back. Uh, you, you make certain moves uh, in life uh, and in profession, and you wonder whether you become persona non grata to folks and. Reaching out to Sherry, while it was indeed um, an exciting thing to do, a risky proposition to jump into her LinkedIn DMs and ask her for a conversation about coming to be with us. I also know about the strength and power of the collective impact networks that are here gathered. And I wondered uh, whether that was a career limiting move. Uh, So I feel heartened uh, to have the opportunity uh, to be with you again. Uh, to engage in this uh, honored setting uh, of providing a closing uh, few reflections for you uh, as you uh, turn forth uh, from the screens uh, back to your communities, uh, engage in new ways, even in this virtual reality to build uh, the villages that our children will uh, grow up in, uh, and to advance visions uh, for a community that are deeply resonant uh, with our own hopes Uh, So thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to share with you. And I really look forward to engaging in some conversation with you. So so thank you, uh, Sherry, uh, for that gracious and kind introduction. Uh, Thank you, uh, Collective Impact Forum, uh, Aspen Institute, and FSG uh, for receiving me yet again. Uh, I want to talk today about a moment that we find ourselves in that frankly, we have experienced before, but we've come to pay more attention to. I want to raise the stakes a little bit uh, based upon the work that Sherry and I are doing together and that we seek to steward on behalf of America's children in conversation with what you all are doing uh, in collectives and organized networks across the country, uh, scaling critically important work, centering the voices of community, and affirming the autonomy of folks impacted and affected by social conditions to determine the outcomes. I want to talk about this new word I learned
3: over the course of the last couple of years and maybe it was new to you too. I want to talk about leading from languishing to beloved community. i us talk about leading from languishing to beloved community. Over the last couple
4: of years, and perhaps it was named uh, as the dominant emotion of 2021, maybe just because we were sitting long enough to pay attention to what was really going on with us. Uh, Maybe uh, because it was a new reality that has grown in the context of our collective thought in North America and indeed even across the globe. The concept of languishing, uh, first believed to be um, named by Corey Keys in two thousand two uh, has an emphasis on a certain emptiness, a stagnation constituting a life of quiet despair, and not a new reality in the context of covid nineteen uh, not not something that came about only because of a racial reckoning in, uh, in Minneapolis and across the country after uh, the police-involved killing of George Floyd. But, but languishing is something we came to pay attention to. Uh, and the best definition is not the sociological. It's, it's, it's actually not what Corey Keyes wrote. Uh, the best way to help people understand languishing is, eh, it's not uh, depression. It is not cl- clinically, uh, diagnosably a mental health state. Uh, it is not burnout, uh, which is directly tied to the realities of the workforce and the lack of life-work balance. Um, Rather, uh, it is um, this uh, life state that impacts all of our realities um, that has something to do uh, with a dissatisfaction, a a lack of engagement, uh, and apathy.
3: Yes, Wendy, it's wasting this sense of wasting, not moving forward and not moving back. And while it is new language for many of
4: us, and we began to read about it in The Atlantic and other publications in 2021, a pre-pandemic study showed that 55% of the workforce may may have been in a state of languishing at any given
3: time. That is to say, the folk, whom you work with and among the folk whom you know in your homes and in your workplace Um, it's a coin toss
4: at any given time as to whether the people that you are seeking to engage around critical social issues are dealing with a
3: meh kind of feeling a blah in their lives and that we have come to be able to name
4: and frame this in the context of a reality of sheltering in place in the sense of uncertainty uh, or an agency over our own conditions that the pandemic has reminded us of, a sense of our own finitude and
3: limitations as we sit with circumstances that we cannot escape. Language, an individual reality that we experience in our lives, but also a
4: collective sensibility for what's going on in our communities. Uh, Some of you, uh, if I want to just talk about a collective languishing in the context of our uh, community work, I I can talk about Uh, Our desires, even to plan for, believe for, and have a sense that we need that gathering of community and wonder about what the COVID protocols are going to say in a particular moment. Uh, To have the hope uh, of that open moment that we all experienced there in the fall of last year and uh, this open moment where we might, we believe there is a, a lightning in the context of the pandemic so we can plan. I gathered meetings. Uh, but then to have the hope dash and the the stagnation of being set back by then having protocols increase because of omicron or B2k very oh no, no not b2k but but you get what I mean this sense that our communities who had desires to move forward, and even before the pandemic felt that we had a little bit of progress moving on the critical social conditions and needles we were trying to move. We we had begun to build uh, the muscles of equity as the soul of collective impact. We had centered these communities uh, who were impacted uh, with advisory bodies and ongoing reflection with them, accountability in ways that they became the staff and even advanced to become the leaders and we had a sense
3: of stagnated progress over the course of the last couple of years uh, and now those of us who have been in this work for a while feel a little bit of a blah about what's really going on this language. Individually and collectively calls for a certain
4: mode of leadership to bring us back to the great visions that we had before. But one of the ways I I think about the visions of what you are doing and, and you know, you have a certain um, prerogative you get to take when you come in, especially when you zoom in. Uh, as a keynote speaker you get to make certain uh, presumptions about uh, the grandeur and the greatness and the power and the uh, privilege and the capacity of the people um, that you are meeting with and i've got uh, some hopes I- I've-, I've hung around a few you've heard of these collective impact gatherings i have I've seen uh, from the stage uh, the the power of this collective network. And so I believe you all are up to something, and I believe you could do some remarkable things. I I have believed deeply over the course of my years in public life, uh, in social ministry, in philanthropy and advocacy, in the concept. And I believe that this is ultimately the macro hope of all of these collective impact efforts. Yes, I'm going to be uh, so presumptuous that I'm going to g- provide one large vision for all of these collective efforts. Just rock with me for a second. Now, before you uh, before you walk away, uh, before you tap off, before you log off or, or tap away, um, I want to argue that part of what you all are up to, as a network of collective actors who have a social vision for that which is not yet in our communities, but already in your hearts and your conversations and your visioning sessions.
3: And what you're up to is pursuit of what Josiah Royce called the beloved community. Josiah Royce um, is an American idealist. Uh, He articulated so
4: many um, perspectives about social possibilities uh, in our nation and in our world. Um, uh, His work, A Word for the Times, uh, was critical in forming and grounding uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, State of the Union Address in 1936. 1936 a time when folks needed a sense of possibility for going forward, an American president reached for the words of voice um, to suggest that the human race was passing through one of its great crises. We're further, new ideas, new issues, a new call for humanity to call on the work of righteousness, of charity, of courage, of patience, and of loyalty. Jo- Josiah Royce uh, not only informed the words and the works uh, to the nation of Franklin Delano Roosevelt at a critical time, he also informed um, the perspective, the study, and the public ministry of a young American prophet by the name of Martin King. Martin King popularized for us this concept of beloved community as he understood all of America to be uh, his. Pulpit and the public stage uh, to be his chancel. Uh, he understood this concept uh, as analyzed by another scholar by the name of Dr. Johnny Bernard Hill. He, he understood King's beloved community and the way he spoke about it to be this: a multi-ethnic,
3: multiracial community of peace and justice, where love is the governing ethic. A multiracial multi-ethnic community of peace and justice where love is the governing ethic beloved community as the answer the conceptual answer the visionary hope and response to our languishing in king's thought johnny bernard hill says there is no clear distinction between the concept of beloved
4: community and the actualization of justice. For King, this concept uh, was the ultimate hope for the communities gathered. And it seems to me, uh, for those in the collective impact uh, networks who are fighting to reduce, uh, uh, um, to prevent uh, abuse of children in one segment, uh, to advance uh, academic access for students in another, uh, to uh, continue to promote degree attainment, uh, to ensure the elimination of the disparities uh, for maternal child uh, health. Uh, these are things that approximate the bringing forth of justice. These are the realities that call forth the disciplines that you are learning about together. And this is the hope beyond fidelity to these various modes and approaches to how we do our collective work together. The how of collective impact is absolutely critical. But the why is the building of beloved
3: community to give people hope beyond, on the languishing within which our land is wrestling. Leading beyond languishing requires the advancement of the concept of beloved
4: community, and that is big enough, wide enough, strong enough, hope-filled enough to provide an umbrella for all of the remarkable work that you are yet doing together. This
3: is the oughtness of Collective impact as an answer to the isness of our languishing, and this moment meets us, even our period of languishing meets us with an opportunity.
4: But part of what I invited uh, Sherry uh, to help me figure out is how to make sense of this. Opportunity, even in the challenge of 2020, the challenge of 2020. My, 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 my God! Um, in the midst of, the I asked her to make a move and enter into a new organization in the context uh, of COVID-19. Uh, in the midst of a pandemic pre-vaccination, I I, I had the nerve and the unmitigated gall in the context of the realities of what she was wrestling with in her own life uh, to ask her to come engage in a new work with and for America's children. Uh, While we were still in the context of wrestling with the pandemic out on the streets that was disproportionately killing black and brown people while we were dealing with a presidential election that would be so consequential that it would lead to an insurrection while uh, we were dealing uh, with shifts uh, in the context of our communities, uh, because of a racialized uh, a protest movement, so protest, pandemic, and presidential election, I reached out to Sherry and said, Sherry, I think you ought to come back to the place where you did your college internship, uh, because there is a unique opportunity. And it is the same opportunity that is presented to each of you. If the oddness of beloved community is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial community of peace and justice, where
3: love is the governing ethic then there has to be some contextual table setting. And Generation Z and the demographics thereof created in 2020
4: an opening and opportunity for your leadership beyond languishing and for
3: your leadership to extend to beloved community. What, what was the opening? In 2020, for the first time in American history, the demographics of children under the age of 18 changed to be majority children of color beloved community a multi-ethnic multi-racial community of peace and justice where love
4: is the governing ethic generation z the first generation in american history to be predominantly people of color the demographic shifts have happened, such that we have rising, perhaps the first generation that has the demographic complexion, to be the hopes of a multiracial, multiethnic community and society. Uh, We have in this body of young people the demographic table setting to make this reality come forth. But that's just the first part of the definition, a multiethnic, multiracial community. Uh, But this peace and justice with love as the governing ethics are overriding conditions that you must create. Yeah, I, I came here today to drop heavy an anchor of responsibility upon those who have already accepted not only the call to work collectively, but the discipline to do so with a framework um, that gives them some guidance on how you do it together. I, I didn't want to cast my pearls before swine.
3: I rather wanted to bring them to those who have already committed to some of this work. I, I see. Uh, That someone has this mute here. I want to make sure that I've not lost everyone.
1: No, we can still hear you. you.
4: Okay. All right. All right. You
3: know, this is the thing. I am, you may not have noticed this as well, I'm Black and I'm a preacher. And sometimes I need response just to make sure I'm keeping time. So thank you very much.
4: Before we go on, I want to tell you about this opportunity. One more thing. Uh, What I invited Sherry to is what I'm inviting you to this recognition of the demographics to work toward an element of beloved community that is an expression of justice. And that is the condition that is not yet of child well being. One of the ways scholars like Ramesh Radgavan of the Silver Institute at New York University uh, define child well being is that children and youth are thriving. They are growing and developing in stage-appropriate ways. That's number one, the affirmation of childhood as a stage in and of itself, not just a preparatory ground for adulthood. Number two, those children and youth have the resources they need to grow into successful adults. They are appropriately, in the context of children's rights work, they're not just protected, but they are provided for. And finally, that they can enjoy being children. Uh, perhaps the appropriate, there are lots of appropriate metrics for child well-being, but one of them has to be the joy of being able to be a child. Now, this is the thing. Uh, Dr. Raghavan and others, uh, ben, Asha Benaria from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and other places, say that these are indeed appropriate conditions. To name uh, these are appropriate metrics for child well being. This is an appropriate thing to apply to the 74 million children, predominantly black and brown, who are coming up as the rising generation in America. And they say, and this is where it comes back to you, that it is the community's responsibility
3: to create the conditions for all children, especially marginalized children, to thrive. Child well being.
4: Uh, Includes making sure that children are growing and developing at stage appropriate ways. It includes making sure they have the resources they need to grow into successful adults. And it includes making sure they can enjoy being children, but it is the responsibility and the obligation of the community to create the circumstances for these children to thrive. You all know this. Uh, You know it because you affirm social determinants of health that suggests that it's not just that there's something wrong with the individual, that we need access to certain care, but the built environment at our neighborhoods can make us more or less healthy. Well, the same thing is happening now. This demographic shift in this coming generation of children has created the first part of the definition of beloved community, uh, for us, multi-ethnic, multi-racial community. And the last part is our responsibility as those adults with our hands to the plow of collective work, gathering, organizing, and impact in our communities to make the definition come forward. So the question becomes, and I'll just share this a couple of things and then I'm done, uh, what will it take to lead from languishing to the beloved community? Uh, I I reflect and I draw in this experience, not from my answers, but from my questions. These are the questions that came up for me in the context of the period that Sherry named um, that I came to know her, Uh, a period of great confusion in my own life about my future and about my community. Uh, In August of 2019, of, of 2014, Uh, one week after my birthday, uh, as I was preparing uh, to go before my congregation and talk about sending children back to school, uh, having guests from the school district come in to talk about all the things we need to do as a community. Michael Brown Jr., an 18-year-old recent graduate uh, in um in Ferguson uh was killed by police and and it was young people who decided to come out mourning and gathering around him and his loss. And his opportunity that called me into question uh, and my path toward leadership. It was the commotion in my community uh, over the course of a year when those same young people remained in the streets and challenged the forms,
3: the frameworks, and the approaches of leadership in the moment that seemed insufficient. These were young people who had been told to defer gratification and get an education
4: and uh, put off Uh, some life choices uh, and decisions until you have established yourself. They were told um, that if you handle your business in school, then everything will work out well for you. Uh, And they looked down at Michael Brown and they saw uh, one of their own generation. Oh, by the way, millennials, the most educated generation in American history. Uh, They saw one who grew up with the social conditions of an economic reality. And they saw one that grew up in the context of social conditions of and mistrust and grew up on the dividing line between an accredited school district and an unaccredited school district. And they said, what you've sold us about education doesn't work because of the economic crisis that we're growing up in. What you have sold us about deferred gratification doesn't work because we can be cut down at the age of 18. What you've sold us as a bill of goods about the American dream and the hopes of the West does not quite work. And because it Broke down for them, and I love them so. I'm just a youth pastor at heart, and now I just have 74 million young people in my youth group. Because it broke them so, it called into question how I had been formed as a leader. And the question became, how did I lead them from that language into the concept of beloved community that I was preaching in the context of my intergenerational, interracial congregation every Sunday? And so I shifted all of my studies and Every, um, every moment I had to try to learn something uh, in between uh, to inform how I was going to show up in that moment um, began to wrestle with this question of leadership. And I looked back into the civil rights era and I looked into anti-apartheid leadership in South Africa. And, and that moment for me of languishing in community and in our community helped to inform a few different approaches that I offer you from my questions, not just not anybody's answers. Uh, first and foremost, I want to offer um, that in ancient studies of leadership, I found these four different modes of leadership, uh, and um, some were grounded in scripture. Some we find in broader context of community. I am a preacher, so grant me that part. But I think we find it in wider modes, and I try to speak of it in a larger context. But these four modes or uh, icons of leadership fall into the categories of priest, prophet, monarch, and sage. Priest, prophet, monarch, and sage. And they serve different functions and roles. As My analysis is informed by folks like uh, Peter Paris, and ethicist from union uh, in uh, New York and others, but but I'll I'll just lay this out and offer these as resources for our conversation. First, I think leading from languishing uh, to beloved community requires the presence of a priest in the work of ritual. The presence of a priest in the work of ritual. I'm not saying you should wear a turned around collar. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that you should uh, wear a dark suit. I'm not saying that you should be in any particular religious tradition. Uh, The work in ancient traditions of the priest was distinguishing between that which is sacred and that which is secular by the use of ritual. It is ordering a space in a unique way in order to transform the space to be what it needs to be. Uh, one of the most remarkable examples in my life, in uh, my lifetime, uh, is the work of Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, in the 1990s. Uh, when I was getting ready for the prom in 1994, uh, Archbishop Tutu was changing and transforming a, a, a bureaucracy, a public bureaucracy of the government of South Africa, which is exactly what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, uh, into a space of healing. Uh, by use of his own garb being worn, by the sharing of incense, and by guiding people in what was essentially a public policy meeting
3: in sacred song and hymnals. He was a priest doing the work of ritual, but it doesn't take all that. Ritual is just what we do to make this space,
4: this moment, this time different. As those who would gather people from respective and different communities, part of the work of gathering in this moment has to help people distinguish when they come into your space, onto your Zoom, into your conversation from what they were experiencing outside of it. Uh, How do you set the room and the space? How do you order the conversation in order to make this moment different from the meh moment they brought, or the blah setting they came from. The work of the priest uh, is demonstrating presence and creating a space through the use of certain marks uh, and certain language. Um, it makes a moment different. If I can use another quick element of language, um, uh, in a book um, from, uh, I guess, about five or so years ago, Chip and Dan, he talked about the power of moment. Uh, They told people not to do what I'm about to do, so don't tell them what I did when I do it. Um, They gave these four unique elements of what creates a moment. They said, don't use them as an acronym, but it makes it out to a nice word, epic. Um, They say that transformative moments um, have elevation, Um, they rise above the everyday, pride, they capture us at our very best, insight, they rewire our understanding of ourselves and the world, and connection they are social in nature. The priest as leader, the leader as priest, has the capacity to set a room and a circle that helps to elevate a moment to be transformative, even epic. And in these languishing times, we need the presence of the priest in the work of ritual. Not just the priest, I said there's also the prophet. The prophet uh, has the responsibility of facilitating participation by rallying the troops, facilitating participation. Uh, a lot of people think about the prophet as the person who has the right word at the right time. Uh, in uh, in uh, some uh, religious traditions, the prophet tells the future. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the most prophetic thing we can do in these moments when people have been languishing in isolation is to create space for collective participation. And I want to argue that prophetic work doesn't call for certain charisms and certain personality, rather prophetic work calls for processes that allow us to be deliberate about how we curate the voices and shape a space for other people to speak. Uh, For me, uh, a gift in this regard has been the facilitative leadership uh, for social change framework of the Interaction Institute for Social Change. Uh, it was a gift for me in 2011 when I joined the staff of Deaconess Foundation, and every staff member had been trained in this facilitative leadership method. As a matter of fact, I talked about it on the stage at that first meeting with Sherry. I talked about what it took to be able to hear from different types of people, and because we are who we are, and we've got our own language and stuff to deal with, and we've got our own human foilties and frail uh, human frailties and foibles. We need processes to help us facilitate the participation of others, because the prophetic work of today is not, as Walter Brueggemann suggests, is not prophet versus king. It's not trying to critique the establishment alone. It is rather providing an alternative witness to the witness of systems that do not work. And the alternative space allows voice for those who have no voice in the context of the system. And we need processes for that. And that participation is the work of the prophet. Not only do we need the presence of the priest and the work of ritual, not only do we need the participation facilitated by the prophet by rallying the troops, but we also need public policy set, stewarded and championed, even administered
3: by the role of the monarch, the monarch. Those
4: um, here, we want to talk about those who have responsibility for the ordering of public resources. Uh, Today, they are Congress people. They are senators. They are school board members. They are mayors. They are governors. You work with the monarchs. Uh, again, I'm using modes from ancient uh, antiquity and applying them to our context. But here, what I'm suggesting is that we need a work and a way to impact public policy in order to make sustainable, in order to make sustainable the shifts that we desire. Uh, my predecessor in this work, um, Marion Wright Edelman, uh, was very clear um, that it would take public policy shifts to get senators, uh, to get America to pay attention to the same agenda that she stewarded in the 1960s for the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Before founding the Children's Defense Fund, uh, she was the public policy director for the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, I remember chuckling at her first telling me the story that the physical address uh, for the uh, the physical address for the Resurrection City encampment uh, at Washington in Washington D.C. on the Mall was her little apartment in Washington D.C. What she knew was that the desires that she hoped for for children had to be embedded in American public policy. So in 1968, when she first started. The Washington Research Council that transformed to be the Children's Defense Fund in 1973, it was to pursue the same agenda of public policy that she and King had been working toward in the mobilization of the Poor People's Campaign. And to be clear, public policy, and I'll echo her voice here again, uh, she says very clearly, if you don't have a budget strategy, you don't have a strategy of a policy is about the purse strings. And so if you really want to lead from languishing uh, to beloved community, not only must you do the work of ritual of the priest being present with the people and standing in the gap, not only must you rally them and get their participation through frameworks that allow for democratic participation and voice, but you better have a strategy to address what the monarch is doing in cap on Capitol Hill and in the capitals in your communities and at city halls. And that better have, Marion said, I didn't say it, you better have a budget strategy to make sure it sticks. Uh, Finally, as I speak of Mrs. Edelman, I'll advance toward a sage that even she um, uh, learned from as well. Not only do we need these uh, perspectives of the priest and the monarch and the the, uh, prophet, but we also need, of course, the perspective
3: of the sage. The sage informing action by guiding reflection through personal witness and the curation of the tradition the biblical
4: traditions that i study uh, the sage uh, knows and studies the oracles knows which came before uh helps to interpret that in the context of the moment for the work going forward, so that that which we do not see yet is already in the vision and the perspective of the sage. And yes, indeed, Cindy, uh, Mrs. Edelman um, was and is a great leader, was a great leader for this organization, is a great and iconic leader for our country. And she learned from Ella Jo Baker, Ella Jo Baker, uh, who um, guided and believed that a powerful people, a great people don't need great leaders. Uh, rather, the curating perspective of the sage does not center itself, but seeks to cultivate the perspectives of other. The sage pours into the generation that is coming so that they might become all that they collectively understand, discern, and desire themselves to be. The sage, Ella Baker would suggest, And Ella Baker has modeled, creates a space for people to become all that they desire. And this is the capacity of this moment. And this
3: is the vocation to which you are called. What I tell you as I go is not to choose.
4: Do not choose to be the priest only doing the work of ritual. Uh, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Do not choose to be the prophet seeking to facilitate the participation of the people uh, and not care about what's going on with the budget. Do not choose to do only policy work uh, and uh, and do that work uh, on its own with those who find themselves in authority alone. Do not choose to sit
3: in a rocker and only be an elder pouring into the youngsters. These are icons of leadership. They are modes of leadership. They're not collective or selective choices. These
4: are options. These are modes through which we will shift based upon the needs of the moment. And when our communities as they are now are languishing and before us is the opportunity to a rising powerfully diverse generation to create the conditions for beloved community, we cannot afford to
3: choose one or the other. We must learn, discern, engage, and hold one another accountable to work in all of these lanes as the moment calls. This is how I think (laughs) this is what I believe is called for in this moment. But I further believe that we better discern it together. So I look forward to
4: engaging in some conversation. And discerning what is next for our communities
3: beyond this languishing on the journey toward beloved community, thanks for the opportunity to be with you and let's let's talk about this a little bit.
1: Oh, Dr. Wilson, thank you. Uh, I'm just going to give a moment so you can scan all the love in the chat, all the appreciation. so thank you uh, from languishing to beloved community. <sighs> Sit with that. So folks, we do have time for questions. Dr. Wilson has um, graciously offered to take some. I have one here that has come into the Q&A box and we'll keep keep our eyes on it. And uh, we have Brad Powell from United Way of Toledo here asking, if you could speak a little bit about how one expands the horizons of social justice within faith-based groups to extend to those we work with as their partners whom they typically do not openly include in consideration of beloved community? I mean, the LGBTQIA2S plus community, for example.
4: Yeah, thank you for this question. I think um, we've got to do really good. But first of all, let me say folks are there. Uh, I commend you um, that I'm I'm blessed um, to have fellowship and ordination standing in two denominations that um, have been progressive on these issues. Uh, Number one, the Progressive National Baptist Convention, which was founded by Dr. King and others in the civil rights era, because churches were not advancing, including Black churches. Let's be clear, including Black churches were not working hard to advance civil rights. Uh, And number two, the United Church of Christ. Um, an open and affirming denomination that um, that seeks to affirm and advance the ministries of LGBTQIA people, um, of gender justice and marriage equality in all levels. And so, uh, so I say first and foremost, look for those partners in your community uh, who are engaging in these progressive ways. And you know, some power analysis is, is about um, go two things. As you know, my organizing friends tell me sometimes you map. Uh, When you're mapping power, you find people who are powerful and you try to convince them to come to your side. There has to be some of that. Sometimes you find people who are on your side and you work to make them more powerful. So I say first and foremost, drop and find those partners in your community, those faith leaders in your community, folks like in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and in the, um, the United Church of Christ and uh, increasingly in the United Methodist Churches, um, um, uh, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran um, um, Church of America, where there are more um, progressive people uh, and help to build them and make them more powerful. That's number one. Number two, create space um, to challenge um, theologies and moral frameworks. Uh, for your faith leaders. Um, Sherry and I just got off a call and we're developing a partnership with Seminary uh, who is already engaged in really thoughtful work around child advocacy. Uh, And we're saying if work is going to be sustainable for faith communities, um, it has to first be faith filled. So we're glad that faith communities are doing work as an aside, as a broad social justice commitment around children. But we believe if they don't understand children as central to their theology. If we don't understand LGBTQIA folks to be central uh, to the concept of human dignity and our kin and our family, then it'll always be an aside. So I actually believe in creating space to challenge those leaders to theologize with you, because part of what has happened is they've accepted frameworks that have been passed down uh, rather than doing the real critical work of interrogating their own faith traditions. And so that's part of what we're trying to do around our child advocacy work. Uh, We're seeking to do that in partnership with denominations, and I encourage that around uh, some of our work across the country around uh, justice issues, including in in a particular LGBTQIA issues.
1: Super, thank you. Another question here is, how do you suggest motivating traditional system leaders to authentically engage in these models of leadership, particularly with engaging beneficiaries of the work and seeing beneficiary perspectives as valid and sharing power with those beneficiaries?
3: Yeah, I mean,
4: some of this, I'm going to say anything I don't, you don't know, right? So I think the the power of story is really valuable. Uh, people being able to witness and share and put in community, um, um, put elected officials, put those monarchs uh, in a position to hear and be transformed by the sharing of stories absolutely critical. Uh, and never, um, you know, Sherry says this a lot, you know, no story without a statistic, no statistic without a story. Right? I think that's a really critical piece. The other thing I say is um, uh, we should never underestimate um, the ability um, to to change who those people are. I am I'm not about I think you are um, curating within your community of those folks who should be those leaders. And so uh, I encourage you also, again, building power and advancing in that regard. Uh, But storytelling is critical, making sure people understand the real impact of these issues um, and making sure that we're organizing for it. So It's an explicit call for community organizing, story banking um, and holding people accountable, but also not taking off the table that sometimes we just got the wrong people.
3: Uh, And um, the quickest way to change a culture is to change the people. Uh, And sometimes we've got to do that work as well.
1: Yep, yep. So um, we have a question, Aaron. Languishing resonates. Where do you start to get the community and youth orgs to work together when they're often so fatigued by current work as it is?
4: Yeah, I think this is something that we've got to be... um, integrating into the ways we work, I really appreciate the work that folks like Sean Ginwright in California are doing around uh, healing-centered organizing, uh, especially for youth, healing-centered youth organizing, taking a trauma-informed approach. I think these are critical things for us to do, to be thoughtful about for our work. Um, I think we have to um, find ways of uh, of integrating from the beginning. If we accept first a perspective um, that there's more um, there 's more value in the voices, and there 's more truth in the collective voice. Um, then we begin our work with an orientation to the outside, not just the margin but to the outside. So what does it mean to say uh, that we believe that the answers are in our community? Uh, if that is the case, then we 've got to structure from the beginning for collaboration, structure from the beginning for an orientation of those who are not at the table and are not the other, and who may be defined as the other. Um, so I think that's where we find the energy and the work by starting outside and then coming inside. And I think it's the only, the only way we ever authentically get there uh, is to start in
3: that place.
1: Kind of pulling on that a little bit more, a little bit of a personal question. What do you do for self-care and to keep yourself inspired?
4: Well, Sherry already told you, I hang out with a six-year-old. And my wife, I I say this a lot. I mean, I tell people as ritual, it's the first thing I ever said to the CDF team, even before I came. I asked them to begin a practice and ritual
3: of closing their eyes and conjuring the image of the child. We all have one that makes us smile. Like, we can't
4: see the, the face of that child without cracking the corner of our mouth, right? For me, That's my daughter. She's six years old. Now I have sons, you know, they're not cute anymore. They're 17 and 14 and 12. They're big enough to be a problem. My six-year-old, she's the whole world. And so for me, like, I mean, seriously, I don't think people can do work
3: for all children
4: if you don't care about one child, if you won't transform the world for one child. And so for me, it's really about that um, making that connection um otherwise i have run in the pandemic uh i tried to outrun language um so i I ran a lot i lost i lost 30 pounds in the pandemic um by running um first walking and then running uh and i've not done as good a job of it more recently because it's run up against my other self-care now that my my my, my wife and my family just moved to dc at the end of december i had been here for a whole year without them uh, kind of flying back and forth to missouri once they got here, I didn't want to leave the house. So now I just sit in the house. Uh, and so it's it's challenging my other self-care um, things. So I got to get back out running again because uh, I picked up some of those pounds. Not, not not double digits, but
3: I picked some back up. <laughs> oh,
1: nice, nice. So let's see. Okay. Um, folks, we have time for a couple more questions, too, if you want to put them in the Q&A. Uh, But let me uh, shift gears a little bit. Can you speak um, a bit more about the role of the priest-like actions with regard to rituals in this moment, as I've historically reviewed rituals as less powerful because it is so much of the letter without as much of the spirit?
3: Yeah,
4: I mean, I think some of it is about, um, I'll use an example. Uh, When I came to CDF, I realized we have a program called CDF Freedom Schools. We're in 128 uh, cities across the country this summer. But we'll have young people uh, who are engaging in a program of literacy development, um, culturally responsive teaching methods. They will, you know, they're 70 percent black, uh, about uh, 13 percent Hispanic. Um, They're going to. But unlike the textbooks they see coming out of my home state of Texas, they're going to see black and brown people in the books. They're going to connect with that and their learning goes up. Um, They increase their summer learning and they um, uh, reject summer learning loss through this. Every day at Freedom School starts with something called Harambe. Uh, Harambe, Kiswahili, let's pull together. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. There's a read aloud component. There's a guest. There are cheers. There's chants. Uh, It sets the day and the moment. And it makes the Freedom School day different than the school day that they came from. And what it does is it shifts the energy in the space. One of the things I recognized, excuse me, when I came to CDF is there was a staff member in California and there were a few more across the country who, because they were doing policy work or they were doing administrative work, they had never experienced Harambe, which is such a critical part of what I understand to be our gift to 12,000 young people every year. So when we did a staff reorientation, we did a three-month reorientation of all staff. We started every session with Harambe. We did Harambe on Zoom, and we were cheering, and we were chanting, and it had that echo thing where nobody's voice was really aligned, but it changed the atmosphere. We went from staff meeting to to all pulling together. We went from, we're going to get some information, to we're becoming a community. It shifts the energy, and I think that's something that we can do, and we've got to be more intentional about um, in how we create those spaces. It can be nothing but just changing um, the order of the chairs in a room to put them in a circle versus having around a table having them around the table it could be nothing more than when you begin a meeting i did this with every meeting i did when i first came to cdf i had meetings to meet all the staff they were all on zoom but when people came into the meeting they heard music and that just wasn't what people were used to i learned that from my friend greg ellison with the project he leads on feelings dialogues when people come into the room they have music It set an atmosphere it becomes a ritual sense, aesthetic, and it makes this moment different. That's all I'm saying. Doesn't have to be a big thing. Just something to make this moment different.
1: Nice. Do you have a favorite song that you would welcome people in with?
4: Actually, I mean, for for our Freedom School stuff, there's a song that um, it says it's called Something Inside So Strong, a South African song. Uh, and it really talks about the power of young people. Uh, And that kind of inward grace and gift that would allow them to overcome the barriers in community. So something inside so strong is my favorite.
1: Nice. All right. Here's one more. How do you get leaders that have already gotten into the conflict and have open disappointment with representatives of the community, community? How do you go beyond that and pass that barrier?
4: I'm not sure. I totally understand. Would you reread it? So I think
1: the question is for folks that are have been doing the work and are really disappointed in like the challenges they're running up against and people not being responsive. How do you go beyond and past that barrier? And I apologize, folks, if I didn't quite interpret it with your intent.
4: Yeah, I think we have to find new challenges. Sometimes we have Mm -hmm. to shrink um, the challenge and or the problem, uh, the scope of a campaign and or a tactic. In order to get energy to re-energize people who are working on it, so it may not be that we're getting the big thing now, but we're able to scale to say, okay, what's the what's something that we can win? We can help people to win to re-energize their work. That's one. The other thing I'll say is um, there is creativity, um, there's creative capacity in conflict and tension uh, related to this. You know, King's work informing his concept of beloved community. Uh, is deeply informed by a Christian mystic and, and theologian by the name of Howard Thurman, who talked about the importance of suffering, but also of tension and conflict in order to create something new. And if nothing else, we, I, I think we should avoid conflict. I think we should not avoid conflict, but seek to make of it and not try to avoid suffering, but in, in Thurman's words, seek to make of it creative. So what are the things that we can do um, in conflict that can expose and educate about the situation and the reality? This is really what nonviolent direct action is about. It's about creative suffering in order to expose a wider uh, challenge and or reality. Uh, But then there's also this opportunity uh, to create, to allow people rest and respite by creating a smaller uh, issue to deal with, create opportunity and energy and a win. And sometimes framing, making sure that we are, even though we've got big visions, big goals, and big hopes, that we are framing uh, a process uh, and a path of wins that allow energy to be generated uh, in smaller
3: things in order to get to the big ones.
1: Cool. That's great. So I think maybe we could please, in one last question. Do you have any experiences of bringing these concepts to those who are not organically working on it, like the business community, community, enterprises, etc?
4: Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is uh, the heart of sometimes you can't talk about it. Let me say this first. Right. As I began to engage. um, Yeah, it's around 2011 with these concepts of collective impact and network building and the like. The, there's a great intention around multi-sector approaches. I don't know that I always agree with that necessarily, but you know, we were early on, you know, made, making one to make sure we checked all the boxes of all the appropriate sectors. And the business community was always, um, for us, a tough one uh, in those early days around children's work. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically of the regional work in St. Louis because there tended to be a more conserving perspective. Uh, What I learned was something I've also learned about racial equity, which is sometimes I have to be explicit and sometimes I have to be implicit in my language as it relates to those communities. I don't talk about power in the same ways when I'm talking to my colleagues in St. Louis from the Regional Business Council or from um, uh, the Civic Progress. They don't want to hear about power. They may engage some stuff around civic engagement, Uh, So part of my learning there is being choice about the rhetoric um, and uh, being implicit sometimes about the aims rather than explicit. Uh, Not talking as much about uh, electoral strategy necessarily, uh, but speaking very specifically uh, about how a public policy agenda and leaders who are aligned with that agenda might be supportive of other things that the business community sees and needs. Uh, And then always, of course, figuring out how to make a case for these different audiences um, is uh, is critical as well. So I think these concepts still work. And the final thing I'll say is I have been
3: pleasantly pleased and and, and sometimes surprised by people's willingness to be human versus being their title. It's a bit of a risk to come to a group like this and to trade in language like beloved
4: community or to lean on elements of my religious background with great knowledge of the pluralistic nature of our world and our work. And I have never spoken to someone as a human based upon their human hopes and dreams and been disappointed that they wanted me to address them in their capacity. I give a famous A a significant example for me. It's not famous. I haven't told the story very much. Um, In the context of the work in Ferguson, um, I was appointed co chair of this commission by Governor Jeremiah J. Nixon. Um, Jeremiah, very intentional based on his family's background uh, and religious sentiments. He was called Jeremiah. He went by J. But I also learned during the process of this work over the course of the year of his own deep affinity for Lyndon Baines Johnson. And I'm originally from Texas. And and at one point, as we came to the close of his work, um, to be clear, he also had aspirations and public aspirations to be the Vice President of the United States. And so much had blown up in his state around racial issues in Ferguson that I finally chose a moment to tell him when there was a quiet kind of gathering of just the closest advisors. I put before him as a human his past engagement with LBJ, his studying LBJ as a student, his uh, conversations that he had had um, um, with the family, and the fact that perhaps he was being presented with an opportunity to live into that kind of legacy of someone like LBJ, who didn't go seeking civil rights as um, as his critical political stamp was more consequential on racial justice issues than almost any president, and perhaps any president, in American history. And they were very similar figures. They they were kind of big guys, kind of a little bit of lumbering, um, seen as conserving. Um, But what I got to address was who he was as a human. And I got to put him in some places where he could wrestle with that reality. He did for about a year and a half. He ultimately chose some other things, but seeing him as a human, uh, who wasn't exactly always aligned with what I wanted him to do from a public policy perspective, created a moment of connection and creative long-term relationship uh, that would not have been there otherwise. And I think that's something that we should risk in this work as well, is seeing people as human and treating them as such before any of their titles or positions.
1: What, is it? what a terrific note to send us out on uh, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson. Thank you. It has been inspiring and such a treat and uh, just everything to be with you. So thank you so much.
0: And this closes out the special replay of a past episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. And if you're enjoying all that we share at the Collective Impact Forum podcast, we encourage you to rate us on your preferred podcast platform and share your favorite episodes with colleagues. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. In forum news, we're excited to share that registration is now open for the 2024 Collective Impact Action Summit that will be held online on April 30th through May 2nd, 2024. It's our biggest learning event of the year, featuring over 25 virtual sessions and sharing out best practices from collaboratives from across the U.S. and globally. And we're excited to announce that our closing keynote will be with political leader and change maker Stacey Abrams that will discuss the power of movement building. Please visit our events section at collectiveimpactforum.org if you would like to join the 2024 Collective Impact Action Summit. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast producer. I want to say thank you so much for listening and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, Let's keep working towards collective impact.